Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuele Tini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode, and today we are going to understand more and I'm really looking forward for this episode to understand more about the carbon market, what it is, everybody's talking about it. And we do it with an expert, James Purbridge, who is the Client Project Manager at Carbon Direct. James, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely, thank you for having me. We want to connect with our guests. We want to know how you have become an expert in carbon and, and now a, a leader in this sector. Uh, James Burbridge, uh, Client Project Manager for Carbon Direct. My journey, you know, it's an interesting one because it started in China. I, um, I'm from a small town in Kansas. I, I grew up having never left my hometown, very small town in, uh, in Eastern Kansas. And, you know, that experience kind of wanted, it, it drove into me, you know, this need to go see more, go do more, see what else is out in the world. And so, I moved to Asia. I moved to Japan for a little bit. I, I'm a teacher for a few years after college. I went to the University of Kansas, studied creative writing. From there, I moved to China. I want to see what all of the, the kind of hubbub is about in China. Big, growing economy, lots of excitement. Go to Shanghai. I realized at this point, I'm not, I'm not a good teacher. I'm not suited for this type of job. So I started to apply my writing skills and I, I get a job writing about energy markets in China for a Russian publication. That was my introduction to energy, is basically working with a couple of analysts um, from Northern China and having them kind of teach me about, you know, this is what's going on in China. This, and it was everything from uh, coal production to oil consumption to new wind farms being stood up, the tax incentives that would go to those wind farms. It was the whole nine yards, really drinking from the fire hose of information, trying to cover everything. But it was a great boot camp and an understanding kind of energy in China. From there, I moved to Singapore for a few years, focusing more on oil markets, specifically fuel oil markets, which if you're familiar with fuel oil, it is the bottom of the barrel, they say, the kind of dregs of, of what you can't turn into higher value products, but they use it in, in bunkering. It's kind of used for dirty power generation. So it's, it's an interesting market. Singapore is kind of the center of that universe. And frankly, it doesn't feel very great. There's nothing altruistic about it. You're, you're talking about a fuel that is very high in sulfur. And it costs a lot of money to upgrade it. So people typically don't upgrade it very much until they're forced to. So I have that experience in the fuel oil markets, but it leaves me wanting something different, something that I'm more personally interested in, something I'm invested in, um, you know, uh, from a personal basis. I moved to California, I moved to Los Angeles, and I have an opportunity to start writing about the carbon markets here. This is in 2015, the carbon markets where it's a compliance market in California. We have a cap and trade system here that is applied basically economy-wide. So refiners, power producers, large industries, they're all under the cap and trade kind of umbrella here. And they wanted someone in California to write about it. And so I took the job. And then this is where I started to feel a connection with what I was actually working on. 
I find the idea of cap and trade and emission reductions, this is more central to what I personally support and that, that was a great feeling. From there, I write about the cap and trade market here in the LCFS program for a couple of years, make some good connections in California. But now again, I'm wanting to do more. So I moved to the Netherlands for a year. I go get my MBA in Rotterdam. I chose the Netherlands because they have a particular focus in their economy on sustainability. And so I thought this is where I wanna go kind of develop my business sense. From there, I come back to the United States and I get a job with the XPRIZE Foundation. So the XPRIZE Foundation based out of Los Angeles, they run competitions to try to solve big problems. They get big pots of money, they put it at the end of a very difficult challenge and they say, if you can solve it, you'll get all, all that money. I was brought in to work on the carbon removal prize. I was researching the carbon removal prize. How do you create a prize around pulling CO2 out of the air and keeping it out of the air for a long period of time? And that was my introduction to removals. I had never heard of removals before, despite being in the cap and trade market. And I think that is a, as a lesson, I think, in where we're at in the cap and trade space or the carbon space. Worked at XPRIZE for a few years. We launched that prize in 2021. Elon Musk came through with a big pot of money. He put that pot of money up and, uh, and attracted loads of entrepreneurs to, to chase that prize. At that time, though, I was thinking about, you know, do you sign up for another four-year prize or do you move to something else? Carbon Direct always kind of caught my attention. Working at XPRIZE, you interview experts all the time. Most of the experts I interviewed for that prize work at Carbon Direct. And so this was always the place where the leading kind of thought leaders in carbon removal were all collecting at Carbon Direct. John Goldberg and, um, and Julio Friedman and Matthew Potts, they were, they were building something, I think, really, really unique and special here in that space. So I made the move to Carbon Direct in 2021, and it's, it's been great. It's been incredibly busy. We're, help, we're helping companies solve their carbon management problems. That's a bit of my background and how I kind of ended up in this space. You know, James, the stories are always fascinating. You can see from all sorts of backgrounds, everybody's looking for purpose. This is something that is coming up episode after episode. People in investment banking going to fund startup. People like you that from teaching and then oil, which is, you know, the fossil fuel now trying to get purpose where? Carbon removal and the market. You see, this is a constant thing. And I'm, I'm very glad to see all this journey that you have done. We go now to the problem at stake the climate crisis and, and the role of, of carbon. Why is it so important? What are the problems? And, and what is the science, since you have a Carbon Direct a science organization, what is the science telling us? I'm a liberal arts guy. I, I studied writing and screenwriting, and, uh, but I work with who I consider to be the best scientists in the space. That's always attracted me to Carbon Direct and the, and the work that I've, I've done. So I get to go to school every day with these guys, essentially, and they teach me about carbon and it's, fan it's fantastic. The problem with carbon, uh, when I think of carbon emissions, it's useful to think of this in a timeline, the history of, of kind of carbon concentrations in the atmosphere. For thousands and thousands of years, it kind of fluctuates around between 250 and 300. We get to 
1750s, the Industrial Revolution starts to really kick off. And all of a sudden, we see an uptick in CO2 emissions. It's slow. It's not, it's not anything dramatic yet. But that's really, 280 is seen as pre-industrial CO2 emissions in the atmosphere. And that is when we start to see an uptick in those emissions. So we're burning more. And why do we see this? Economies are developing and they're using coal, they're using oil, they're burning more wood to develop their economy. CO2 emissions are on the rise for the next 150 years. Is my math right there? I think that's right. We get to roughly World War II, 1950s. The world is undergoing another major change. The U.S. is now rapidly developing economically. And now we see another sea change in how many our CO2 emissions entering the atmosphere. In about the 1950s, if you look at that timeline of CO2 emissions or CO2 uh, concentrations in the atmosphere, 1950 is when all of a sudden you break 300 ppm in the atmosphere for the first time in you know, our kind of in human history. And all of a sudden, it doesn't bounce up and down so much. It starts to just go straight up. Now, the, the, the straight up, depending on the, how long your timeline is, if you're talking thousands of years, 1950 to 2000, it does look straight up. If you look at it from 1950 to 2000, it still bounces up and down, but it's bouncing up and down, gradually rising. So now we get to 1950s, we've, we've broken 300. We get to the 80s, more of the world is developing. You have China starting to become an economic superpower. They're at the very beginning of that, that phase of their history. The world is opening up more oil is being produced, more oil is being burned, more coal is being burned. Everybody is burning more fossil fuels. Now we start to even increase that rate of, of building in, this, in the atmosphere. At this point, we're now very good at extracting oil and coal and fossil fuels. As a society, we are incredibly good at this and burning it and releasing all of those CO2 emissions in the air. Because there's no incentive to not do that, there's no disincentive to doing it. Uh, it's the classic tragedy of the commons where everybody's allowed to release those emissions into the air and, and it's fine. But now we're starting to see the effects of it and, and scientists are increasingly raising their voices and saying, we can't keep doing this. We're now at 350 ppm in the atmosphere. Um, we're now at 375. We keep raising the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere and we're seeing a rise in temperatures. Like we're starting to to ring the, the alarm bells here. So from 2000 to even now, 2022, we're now at roughly 415, 420 ppm uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. We are every year seemingly breaking records for the amount of CO2 we're, we're dumping into the atmosphere from economic expansion. Uh, you look at what happened with shutdowns of COVID, there were very short term drops in CO2, but we've now ramped up our recovery, and we were now breaking records again for the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So that to me is the problem, and it's twofold. It's what we kind of talk about is the, um, if you think of it as like a bathtub, which is like a common imagery that's used in this conversation, we've got a very full bathtub and the faucet is still at full blast. We need to simultaneously turn the faucet off, so decarbonize these economies, we also need to be emptying this bathtub that is full of CO2. So there's two problems here, and I think that is what we're trying to tackle 
with our clients as a, as a company. The problem is there. One of the solutions is Carbon Direct. Can you explain a bit the history, the mission and the work that you are trying to do? The history is quite short. We haven't been around that long. Uh, we've only been around, I think, since 2019. I joined in 2021, but the company was still still fairly fresh then as well. And the mission is pretty simple, I think, of Carbon Direct. And it's to me, it's primarily, we need to scale carbon removal markets. We need to scale carbon removal technologies. We just talked about you know, emptying the bathtub of CO2. The technologies to do that remain incredibly immature. They exist, but they are not at scale. And that's what we need to get to. We need to get them to millions and billions of, billions of tons of scale. And by our estimates, there's probably no more than 50, 60,000 tons of capacity in the world right now for high quality, durable, CO2 removal. When we say durable, it's you can pull the CO2 out of the air, but what you do with it matters. You can put it into a, a tree is a, is a good example. CO2 is a great mechanism for removing CO2 from the atmosphere, but durability there is talking, or maybe talking decades, which is great. Trees are great. Trees are definitely part of the solution. We need more trees, but cannot be expected to store the CO2 for hundreds to thousands of years. And that's what we need to be moving towards. You can, there are engineered solutions that can pull CO2 out of the atmosphere mechanically, but then what do you do with the CO2? A lot of people put it, you can put it in a fizzy drink and then you have no carbon benefits or you can stick it in the ground. You can turn it into a rock. You can do different things with it. Then you're talking about thousands of years of durability. That's what we need to do. There's just not enough of that yet. So mission of Carbon Direct, scale those technologies up, scale up this market of carbon removal technologies. I would say the other mission attached to that is improving quality of the carbon markets. Frankly, the carbon markets have been around a long time. The foundation that they were built on allowed there to be a lot of projects that utilize those markets to finance themselves, but they aren't achieving the climate impact that they're stating. Our analysis shows that carbon markets, I think right now, are they're maybe 2 billion offsets in the world right now, 2 billion offsets created. We've done some great work with University of California, Berkeley to kind of understand what are all the projects out there? Who, where are they located? What are they doing? When we analyze that, I think we see only 25% of those credits are of high quality based on how we assess quality in the market, where the projects are additional where the baselines are appropriately set, that overcrediting is, is avoided and tamped down, where durability is, is moderately high and, and, and reasonable, where there's no environmental justice concerns or any harms on, on ecological environments. Um, so if 75% of the market we deem, what we see our science team evaluates those projects and we don't think that they're high quality, that means you're left with this small portion, this quarter of the market that we think is, is a high quality avoidance credit or offset. And then if we look further to say of, of the current market, what are high quality removals? It's only like two or 3%, very little pieces of the market that are high quality, durable carbon removals. And so that is a huge problem. We need to be scaling up the capacity to be removing CO2 from the atmosphere, but we also need to be improving the quality of these projects so that we can 
scale these things up simultaneously and gain back trust in this voluntary carbon market. So I think that is one of the issues that, that has frankly made us so busy over the past couple of years is that the voluntary carbon markets suffer from a lack of trust. They, corporates are, they would like to buy these offsets, but they are looking at the headlines of Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And these, these headlines are calling out project quality and that risk is too high for them. The risk that they end up doing or supporting the wrong project is too high. They come to us to try to assure them or find them a high quality project. And so those are the missions of Carbon Direct. That's the kind of work we do. We help corporates evaluate the market, understand that quality is very difficult to find right now. Here are some projects that we think are high quality. Here are some different ways to help this market, to scale it up, to invest early in high quality projects. The removal space, like I said earlier, is still very new, it's very small. Um, so there's a huge educational aspect of this work we do where we are, even if people have experience in the voluntary carbon markets with avoidance credits, they may not know anything about removals. So educating clients on this is the difference between avoidance credit and here's the difference between removal credit. Removals focused on taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. An avoidance credit is avoiding the emissions associated with cutting down a forest or driving a car. Sustainable fuels are like low quality uh, heating sources. So clean cook stoves are an avoidance uh, offset or, or renewable energy. You know, the counterfactual here is that the energy would come from coal. You should be supporting renewable energy projects. Instead, it's an avoidance of, of coal emissions, additionalities of challenging. It's very interesting because there is a lot, I feel, uh, people, they are very confused. Offsets, removal, avoidance. And thank you for the very clear uh, clarification. I've seen Carbon Direct is a leader, as you said, you know, the World Economic Forum, the discussion, the paper that you have um, published together with Microsoft. Can you tell us a bit about uh, which are the key points, the key lessons? It's a big document. We will put it in the, in the links. It's available. And then... Can you see about the carbon dioxide removal and the dissolution proposal? Which are the points for a good project? Yeah, so the document, this would be the criteria for high quality carbon dioxide removal. We published this now two, past two years with Microsoft. You know, this document was born out of Microsoft, one of our clients. They really started their carbon dioxide removal program in 2020 kind of burst onto the scene with a million tons of, of purchases that first year. But one of the lessons from this, and the Microsoft team, the Carbon Direct team have published other places. There's a good paper in Nature talking about lessons learned from that first year of purchases. And one of them is that there's just not enough of these tons out there. Quality is really, really hard to find. And we spend a lot of resources basically sifting through all of these projects and trying to understand the quality of them. So the criteria document was born out of a need to direct project developers to say, we want more high quality projects. Here is some direct guidance to high quality broken down by project type. Because in the removal space, there's you know, roughly eight to 12 different ways you can do this, depending on how you think about cross-pollinating some of these removal types. So there's hybrid solutions, but we developed this document with Microsoft to tell the market directly, here are your shoulds, here are your musts. If you wanna be 
considered a high quality project, you absolutely must be doing this. If you want to go further, you should be doing this. A lot of what we talk about in that document is about telling project developers, bring actual data that shows where the carbon is coming from, where it's stored, and do it a bunch. And the more data, the better. What we oftentimes see is that there's not enough verification and measurement of carbon that is being stored in, say, a rainforest or an, a field or, or elsewhere, that it's, a lot of it is either modeled out or assumed because it's hard. Frankly, it is very, very hard to accurately measure these outcomes, but that's what we need to see. That's what we want to see at Carbon Direct. This is what Microsoft needs to see to be confident in their purchases. We understand that it's early days and some of this needs to be developed further and that's fine, but we need to understand what is the plan for those measurements. How are you going to improve your measurements over time? How are you going to increase their quality? How are you going to increase their quantity? That is a lot of what that document is about. Thinking about some of the other bullet points in there, they all stem from our kind of core evaluation criteria, just running through that additionality. Does the project need carbon finance to be realized? If it doesn't, then that's not an additional project. The carbon benefits would have already been realized, therefore not additional likely to fail that test. There are other tests for additionality. Is it a common practice in the region is another one. But we lay out those tests by vertical in the document. Baselines and carbon accounting, trying to avoid overcrediting a project by understanding the arithmetic that gets you to your crediting periods. You know, what are your inputs? What are your outputs? Where are all of your associated emissions? And trying to understand that. Durability, we spoke about how, how durable is the carbon going to be held? You take it out of the atmosphere, fantastic. Where is it going to go and how long will it stay there? And proving that is, can be challenging. Some of these are only able to be modeled currently, but that's a, it's a hugely important part of the carbon removal space. We've evolved in the most recent documents, our thinking, and we will continue to evolve over the course of this year and next year, our thinking on doing no harm projects need to validate claims of any co-benefits that they're claiming. Are you, you say you're increasing biodiversity. We'd like to see some evidence of that, or we'd like to see it explained. Are you engaging in your community? Are there any other harms or benefits that are being accounted for and making sure that we go to the bottom of that? Uh, that's a hugely important part of our project evaluation now is kind of gaining social license because we know that's going to be a huge part of scaling up this industry in the future. I liked a lot the environmental justice. It's an NGO world, and then I've seen it in a documents. It's really seen how businesses now they are also involved, you know, in the social aspect. It's especially challenging for we we decided to try to fine-tune our guidance this year because I think a lot of project developers find this the most challenging one of our criteria to to meet and to understand. I think this is still fairly new. And so we want to be giving them more guidance how to do this. And so I think there will be future edits of the criteria document. It's a living document. We will update it as needed, as the science is updated, as our guidance to project developers is further thought out. Just trying to help project developers 
develop good projects. Thank you so much for sharing because you can see the holistic nature of this type of project. It's not just planting a tree and then removing, but you see all type of criteria. That's why also how you build trust in this market and also people now they are confident on what they are purchasing. I want to ask a bit more, you know, if you can share one or two insights about some success stories of your work of carbon direct work. I think one of the big wins is our message of high quality carbon removal scale up is resonating with a number of companies all over the world. To me, that is a win. The number of clients who come to us and say, I want to buy a $5 offset doesn't really happen. And when we tell them, if you want a high quality offset, the price is probably going to be much higher. They're still open to that conversation. I think that's a win from the perspective of, you know, I guess, the voluntary carbon markets, from the perspective of anyone that is focused on high quality outcomes. Those low quality, low price tons are still being purchased. And I think they're distorting the market still. But I'm heartened to know that when we tell them it's going to be three or four times that cost, they're not storming out of the phone call. They're not leaving the room immediately. To me, that's a win. Um, we've been incredibly busy over the past 12 months. This is a message that's resonating. Companies are looking for help. Companies are coming. They're wanting to be led by science, which to me is, is another win. They want to get it right. The, the conversations with you know directors, decision makers at big companies, they're going to be spending the money anyways. They want it to be on something high quality. I would say outside of Carbon Direct, I think the carbon removal X prize is another really big win. You know, when you think about the first prize was launched in, I think, 2015, that was a carbon utilization prize. Only 40 teams, I think, signed up for it. That's a good number. It's a really hard pro project. And it was probably ahead of its time. It came on the scene when there were only a handful of people working on CO2 utilization. So that's 2015, you have 40 teams, you get two winners, 10 teams in the finals, all of them really great. They're doing very big things now. That's amazing. The carbon removal prize now, for a number of reasons, you know, you can't just say it has grown because the industry has grown. You know, the Elon effect is definitely helping interest and a $100 million prize purse is definitely boosting numbers. But I want to say they had 600 submissions for projects that are removing CO2 from the atmosphere. I think they had over 1,000 indications of interest. So a thousand registered teams or somewhere north of that. I can't remember the final numbers, but then comes to 600 submissions in year one, which then gets to the 60 semifinalists for, for the first milestone. To me, the, the, the growth and the interest in these types of projects that again are really hard and they force a bunch of different disciplines together to figure out how to compete, that I think is a win. I think that is a huge, huge win for the industry as a whole that, that we're seeing really smart people focus their time and their efforts on how to figure this thing out. They see an opportunity, but they also understand how important it is that we start investing in this all today so that we have the right tools in 2030. That was the whole point of that competition is that it's all very young, and it's maturing, but we want to accelerate it. I think they are incredibly important. And as I said, you know, profiting from solving problem rather than the old paradigm, the one that made the, the bathtub to become big and full. Profiting 
with the, with the exploitation. So that is the new paradigm of the businesses and the work you're doing high quality and the work also to take holistically the carbon project, it's, it's really important. As we are approaching the end, I want to ask you know, a question about what do you think of this market for the future from your observatory, since you are now in a privileged space, what do you think of the carbon removal, the voluntary carbon market? Where is it headed? I think companies want to get this right. What we have seen happen sometimes is that they don't realize how hard this is going to be, that they need help. And that's fine. But I think this, it, this is a very difficult problem to decarbonize and then remove tons over the next decade. It, it's incredibly challenging. The carbon markets are a good tool to fit into these types of solutions. Residual emissions are going to be avoided. They're going to be offset. They're going to be avoided and removed. That's fine. The voluntary carbon market, though, needs to mature, I think, pretty rapidly and focus on quality, improving the quality of, the, of these offsets that are, that, are in, that are traded in the voluntary carbon market. Uh, we're at a pretty important point because there's a lot of organizations and efforts to put more guardrails, to put more guidance around the voluntary carbon markets, to try to fix some of the problems that came out of the early days of the VCM. Those are needed conversations, but it's really, really, really important we get them right today. Because if, we're, if we go down the wrong path again, if the markets are incentivized to continue to focus on volume, and low prices rather than environmental outcomes, it takes lots of time, lots of effort, lots of resources to get things back on track. It's already very hard to find a high quality offset in the market. We're at a decision point where we can refocus the market on quality, which would make this all easier, which would help everybody. It helps the environment, it helps corporates. That's an incredibly important point today that will kind of spell out the roadmap in the future. You know, I think the trading of offsets and the, the use of these offsets, the, the kind of instruments themselves, really valuable tool that is still recovering from a, you know, a bad decade or so or more. I think it's important that, these, that the markets and the players within it start to win back the trust of people who need these offsets. There's a lack of trust, there's a lack of transparency, Part of that is, you know, I think very complicated science. These concepts are not, they're not easy to convey or to communicate. I think there's, there's a role for science and for good communicators to get involved. So something like this, where you're giving a platform to, to communicators to explain, here are the problems, here's how we think they can be solved. To the liberal arts guys like myself, who don't understand the science but can read a page, there's something to be said for how important that's going to be in the future. Conveying clearly, this is what's being done, this is what's not being done, here's what needs to be done. Again, I think about the early wins, we're seeing more interest in this needed technology, the, the technologies and the uh, types of removal that we see in the market. You know, if we're going to reach the billions of tons of scale that are needed in 2030, the 20 billion tons I think they say we'll need in 2050, and we're sitting at 40,000 tons of annual capacity today, to be generous and say there's 100,000. Let's just say I don't know what I'm doing in the market. I don't see a bunch of it. Let's just say there's 100,000 tons. 
and we need to get to a billion tons, and then we need to get to 10 billion tons and then 20 billion tons, the scale up is incredible. And it's great to see all of the interest from cap, from venture capital, from private equity, from banks and corporates, people with resources are, and companies with resources, governments with resources are focusing on this and they need to, but man, there's a long way to go. It's not, there's no time to sit down and celebrate. I think it's more time to start picking up shovels and axes and picks and keep doing this work and continue to keep our heads down and investing in these technologies and investing in, in the work of removing carbon from the air. God, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. And it's really a very full episode, full of content, full of packed of insights. And I hope really that people listening, people in the business, people that have decision maker for offset, they really start understanding what is needed to improve the market and work. As we are approaching the end, I, I really ask the people to give us a final message, a call for action for the people that are listening. Go read the criteria for high quality carbon dioxide removal. I think that's a great place to start to understand the types of technologies that we see in the market, how they can be high quality. Um, I think that's a, that's a great foundational piece to begin with. You know, some of the work that we've done on our website about, you know, how we think about offsetting our own emissions are also good, very clear, small scale pieces of writing that just show this is how hard this work is. It's not easy, but that, that's not an excuse to not do it. It is all the reason in the world to get it right, though, and to bring in the right experts to make sure you're doing it correctly. So Carbon Direct website, but it's, I think that there are some great resources there. I think the other just major takeaway is, is what we ended on in the previous question. Like there is so much work to be done. There's roles for, I think, lots of different backgrounds. If someone like myself from the middle of nowhere in Kansas with a liberal arts degree that wanted to be a screenwriter can find a way to be productive in this highly scientific space, then I think there's roles for everybody. There's no shortage of work. That is the most confident thing I've said today. Go read up, do a bit of reading, and then put on your hard hats because there's work to be done. Thank you, James. And I really like the call for action. This is also the purpose of the podcast to try to send the messages outside and get people, you know, from passing from the talk only to the action and the work. And then to go to 20 billion from 100,000, that's a lot of work. If we don't do it all together, then, you know, the consequences, they might be dire for us and for the whole planet. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a very insightful and content-rich episode. And then I'm sure I would like also to invite you maybe for the future, seeing one year or two, how Carbon Direct is shaping and continue to work in this uh, crucial market for this crucial mission. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.